0: On this episode of The Engendered Podcast, our guest is Kenya Hunt, an award-winning writer and author of her new book an essay collection entitled Girl, Girl, Girl on Womanhood and Belonging in the Age of Black Girl Magic. Our conversation explores the lives of Black women and cultural differences within the Black community, the trials and tribulations of being a mother, especially a mother to Black children, and the meaning of Black Girl Magic and what it really stands for. In short, we examine themes of belonging, connection, resilience, and identity. Welcome, Kenya.
1: Thank you for having me. Well, uh, it's great to meet you. I think that this is a very
0: apt moment for you to be part of our theme on windows and mirrors because we're at such a transition point in our culture and in our political situation as well, and so many things that have happened, you know, have reflected kind of the, the cultural history of the intersection of race and gender, which is what you talk about in your book. So I wanted to start off with just the title of your book and your intention behind writing it. What was it that you hoped to achieve by the book? And then later on, can you please define what is Black Girl Magic?
1: I started thinking about this book when I was on maternity leave with my second son, um, and, you know, my first maternity leave was a period of great reflection for me. And this was also the case with my second. And so I really just wanted to really take some time to think through what I was observing and also my lived experience as a Black American woman abroad. You know, I was participating in this moment of heightened visibility for a Black women, particularly as an editor. You know, I've worked for a range of t- titles in women's magazines on both sides of the Atlantic. But, you know, I was witnessing Black women go from milestone to milestone, magazine cover to magazine cover, like, you know, a, a number of really um, incredible and historic feats as well. And I also, you know, was in t- intense discussion with the women in my network, network about the our lived experiences and how that was looking, you know, the, the daily trials and tribulations and the complications of... Our lives, um, and so I was also thinking about social media and the rise of Black Girl Magic and Black Excellence, and you know these hashtags that really became much more than hashtags. You know, they became movements and really like sort of rallying calls for all of us. And so, um, so I, you know, I'd say Black Girl Magic is more sort of the context and the backdrop for the book, like really sort of looking at my own lived experience within the context of that. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to write about my particular truth, you know, as a black American woman living abroad and coming into a sort of heightened understanding of, you know, the intersectionalism, you know, in my life. And then I also wanted to invite some women who are either dear and close friends of mine or women I'd encountered through work who I really admired um, from afar to contribute their stories as well. So that, you know, felt quite diasporic in nature. Uh, How long have you been living overseas? Um, So I I moved here just before the Obamas were inaugurated. Prior to that,
0: and subsequent to your move to, to England, what was your relationship to that term, Black Girl Magic, and how did it change? I know that the term didn't exist in its current context, so to that concept, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I'm not sure Black Girl Magic was a known thing prior to my moving here. So, I mean, it really, it's something that, I mean, I'll have to fact check the dates, you know, I write about it in the book, but um, it it really wasn't, um, you know, a popular thing on social media the way it is now. I mean, so Joan Morgan, who's a writer whom I love and admire, wrote about the idea of Black women being magic in her collection of essays, when chicken heads come home to roost. And that was published in the late 90s early aughts i believe but i mean the the phrase didn't you know become anywhere near you know as popular as it is now until i would say in recent years probably in the last i think the past five years i think it was around 2015 when it became a really popular hashtag and kashawn thompson was the woman who's widely credited with having sort of popularized it on twitter um so yeah that said when i first moved here I mean, all of these things, I mean, I think that's what's so fascinating about the time that I've been here in the UK is that my move here, my time here really sort of runs parallel to the rise in social media, you know, like all of it. So, I mean, that's Black Twitter, that's the Black Lives Matter movement, that's our dependence and our addiction to our cell phones, like all of these movements that have sprung up out of social media and the iPhone. I feel like that all sort of happened in the decade that I've been here. Um, And so I think it's, you know, been quite a real pivotal decade for black women in a lot of ways, you know, black women have always existed and we've always been living our lives and doing incredible work and incredible feeds. But I think thanks to, you know the power and the tools of social media and the way that we've used it to our benefit i think you know we've seen a, a real sort of heightened recognition and visibility there
0: before the term came into prominence i guess what do you think black women in this country in particular when you were when you were here were challenged with with regard to their struggles of um managing all of the daily assaults on them in terms of racism and sexism and the preconceived notions that are showing up in media and texts that are incomplete or inaccurate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I can only speak to this, you know, the particularity of my truth rather than for all Black women. And I can say, in my experiences coming up, I really try to. I mean, with the book, I really try, you know, there's some really heavy aspects of the book in terms of essays. You know, we talk about loss, a number of different kinds of loss, and navigating microaggressions at work and, um, you know, personal disappointments and, you know, overt and insidious forms of racism. But I also really wanted to center the narrative black women around joy. Because for me, I think, you know, rising up the ranks in New York as a young aspiring writer and editor, I mean, I definitely encountered discrimination. I definitely encountered it, you know, at university and things, but I didn't really view that as sort of like the defining aspect of my life. So I feel like for me, it was really this idea of, you know, we encounter these obstacles, um, but we thrive in spite of it, you know, I keep thinking about like the this most recent election in which, you know, black women were so key and pivotal in, in terms of putting Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the office. Black women did that and they had to power through, you know, nearly unprecedented levels of voter you know, suppression or at least I mean, in terms of the most voter suppression we've seen probably in recent memory. To do this and accomplish it, this and you know that's just what they did. And in terms of my life, I think, and you know, the, the friends that I know. I mean, my experiences for the most part have been, you know, as a black woman have have been centered around joy, immense joy, and pride and love for self and each other. So just loving the experience of being a black woman, despite you know, having to deal with highly irritating microaggressions in the workplace or, you know, just really kind of more overt forms of discrimination or just devastating, heartbreaking experiences like watching a, a dear friend lose her brother to police brutality in California, for instance, as um, Abele Akobe writes about her experience of, of losing her brother. So there is definitely pain. The, and yes, we're sort of living with the reality of like, you know, the interlocking systems of oppression that come with racism and sexism. Um, But for me in writing the book, it was really, really um, important for me to frame the book in a certain way so that I wasn't framing my own personal experience of Black womanhood as being like a problem area or of being like downtrodden and like criminally overlooked uh, or abused in terms of, you know, how we internalized it and and, and live our lives.
0: Is that what you were referring to when you talk about, Seeing yourself through the eyes of others, like when you moved to London, that it gave you a new perspective of yourself. What was that perspective? That joy part, or is there something else that you were re- referring to?
1: Well, and so that one, there's an essay called "An American in London," and I talk about how it took my leaving America to sort of develop a different understanding of my blackness and my womanhood, and how you know taking these taxi rides and in having engaging in these conversations with you know. A, a, A diverse range of taxi drivers really gave me a a different sort of view of it basically just, you know, it was a completely different interaction outside of my echo chamber. So it was a really interesting look at how people view where I come from. So, I mean, whether it be America or Black American women or me personally. And so I think, you know, we've seen lots of films and television shows, you know, age old um, sort of works that look at the idea of the taxi cab confessional and that sort of thing. And so for me as an expat, I found the interactions that I had in these cabs to be particularly enlightening and just really quite, I mean, I was quite fascinated by them because, you know, it really depended on who was in office, you know, who was the president, what was happening in the world. And I was just getting this direct response to that in the line of questioning that I was, you know, receiving from them. So, you know, when when I first moved here, um, the Obamas, you know, it was the end of the Bush years, the Obamas were coming into the White House. There was a real tremendous degree of curiosity about the Black American experience, as well as goodwill and excitement for this next, you know, this new chapter. Or then, you know, here when Meghan Markle was, you know, on the cusp of marrying into the royal family via Harry. You know, that again, you know, I would get more curiosity or, you know, there were those who might, who were a bit suspicious of who this Meghan Markle character was. So, you know, lots of questions about that. I mean, there basically, I found myself repeatedly being in a situation where I was re- representing an entire group or demographic of people, whether it was like an entire nation or an entire age group or a racial group or that sort of thing. So it was really quite fascinating being in the position of having to speak to that. So, yeah, I, I I thought it was quite an eye-opening experience. Um, I learned a lot about myself and having all those conversations, but also I felt like I was learning a lot about the country that I've moved to and the city that I've moved to.
0: And the perceptions that people have of Americans and in, in our yeah. race and culture here. Um, no, I, yeah. The reason I asked that is because I when I was um, after college, I was working in Asia for, for some time, about five years in Hong Kong. And I found myself, you know, I didn't agree with the political situation and the the elected leaders at the time. And I found myself having to defend them in a way that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have and and having to restrain my criticism. And so I was wondering maybe if you were doing that too, besides the education fact, were you also put in a position where you had to think more critically of the opinions and the perspectives that you may normally be challenging?
1: Well, I mean, I think, Uh, The thing about a a taxi ride is that it's fleeting. You know, the chances are slim that you'll ever see this person again. So, I mean, with me, I tend to just, in these conversations, just be really honest and frank. And so I think that's also why I really appreciated those conversations to a certain degree. Because if you're at a dinner party and you've got a friend of a friend who's sitting next to you or a friend of a colleague and they're really, you know, espousing some beliefs that are just completely at odds with yours or that you just find to be slightly are just not completely in alignment, sometimes that might impact the way that you debate it out. Whereas in a taxi cab, it's like, I'm never going to see this guy again. Like literally, I'm just going to tell you exactly what I think, which I would probably do at a dinner party as well, but I'd just be more mindful, you know, of how that can go and in what context you might see that person in again. But um, yeah, so I mean... I've had really enlightening conversations and then conversations that are just completely wild and bonkers. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if I can give this person much more of my time and my energy and we'll just sit for the remaining 15, 20 minutes in silence. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it really depends on, you know, what the line of questioning is.
0: So throughout your book, you reference different cultural events and moments that, and how they shaped you and your own consciousness and thinking about your identity as a black woman, especially one overseas. And one of them was reference to Black Panther. And so, tell us what that meant to you.
1: Um, yeah. So I mean, I was when I moved to london i mean i really only knew one other black person personally and so i was coming from new york where i had like just such an expansive and rich network of girlfriends and community people of all racial backgrounds but you know i grew up you know i had my family in virginia i had my friendship group in new york and then i was part of a larger creative network that just felt really robust um and you know i was surrounded by blackness all The time. I mean, even if I were in my work settings, I'd be like the only white person in the room. Beyond that, you know, I had such a rich um, sense of community. And so then I moved here and I was completely starting from scratch. And so, you know, I moved here. He's my now husband. We were just dating at the time. He's white. He's wonderful. But, you know, he's not a black woman or, you know, we don't have that shared experience. So I just had to sort of set about the work of like building a community for myself. And so I think that was, you know, really an interesting, um, experience because yeah, it's quite, it's quite difficult, isn't it? It, No matter who you are, what background you're from, it's difficult to move to a new place and start over again and making friends and building those relationships that make life enjoyable, but also just help you get through tough times, you know, or, or just help bolster you or people to sound, you know, be a sounding board or workshop things with like, I didn't have any of that. So with black Panther, It was a real kind of full circle moment for me because I remember moving here and trying to foster that and build that and not knowing where to look. Like I knew London and I knew the UK had a rich history of, you know, I knew that there was a, I knew there was a black community here and a thriving one and one with a rich history. I just didn't know how to tap into it yet. And so when Black Panther, by the time that film rolled around, it was great because I, by then I'd been here a number of years and I'd had like a really beautiful, I built a beautiful network of friendships. But then to walk into that theater and witness this film that was really quite diasporic in nature and really celebratory of uh, what we can be in the places that we come from. Mind you, there were some very fair and valid critiques of the film and how, you know, it ran the risk of exoticizing Africa to a certain point and playing into this narrative that, you know, we all came from kings and queens, uh, which can be problematic on on a different level that said i think there was real sitting in that theater among you know black people from all places you know there was me i'm from virginia I had friends there who were from lagos kingston jamaica accra ghana like just from so many different places and um, that we all sort of felt this swelling of pride, but also that we were just all in the room together. This, this incredible, like, celebratory, atmospheric environment, a film premiere, a mar- like a superhero film of all, of all things, massive budget, you know, box office breaking, record breaking. Um, so I, that felt like a bit of a, you know, high and, and a moment of intense reflection. And we've seen, you know, other films as well. You know, there's been a real rise in... Um, uh, you know, a real wave of black screenwriters and directors who have really pushed through in television and film who are really just showing us a range of stories, um, which is a beautiful thing to see that when Black Panther happened, we hadn't really seen anything quite like that in a very long time. And so on a macro level, culturally, it was a huge moment, but also personally, it was, you know, deeply meaningful because I felt like I'd finally reached this place where I'd been, t- I finally tapped into that network of people that I'd been searching for d- during my early years here. I, I mean, I'm, I'm
0: sure you, you're aware of this, but the impact was beyond just the Black community because as an Asian American, you know, I was there. We, my, my community and other communities of color, we were there um, in solidarity because it was, probably not as meaningful, but very meaningful for us as well, to see, you know, the non-white dominant narrative yeah, be uh de-centered. So So that, that was important. And we felt just as much a sense of pride to see that there was this representation that was nuanced and that was celebratory and like you were referencing earlier, joyful. And so I, I want to talk about that. Back to our theme of mirrors and windows, in education, there's this concept that it's important to be able to have windows into other life experiences, lived experiences and mirrors of your own. And we know that that's lacking in traditional education. And it's, as you're referencing, getting better in mainstream media. But now with COVID, there's obviously a threat to the whole sort of production industry and uh, I know that there was some criticism that production entities like Disney, right, is is making so much money and generating so much, so many new subscribers. And for me, as someone who has never really connected with Disney and its very traditional stories, what do you think this moment, this COVID moment, has in terms of images, um, an opportunity for non-white? producers and writers and and storytellers, what can we do to address this moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really incredible moment to witness. And that we have, you know, I think because of, you know, George Floyd's very tragic murder, and then the Black Lives Matter movement, which had existed and was doing incredible work, gaining steam to the point where the New York Times declared it like the largest movement in history, in America's history, but I would say you you could perhaps say globally as well. I think that inspired um, or escalated a lot of conversations that people had already been having in a number of different industries from film and television to book publishing to, you know, media like magazine publishing, women's media and fashion media, which is where I am. And so there's been a lot of discussion and people asking, what can we do to prevent this from being a trend? I mean, the New York Times just ran a, a piece on Friday, I believe it was, that sparked a lot of discussion around just how white book publishing is. And one of the um, publishers who was quoted in the piece said, quite frankly, that, you know, publishers tend to sort of reawaken to the fact that Black people exist like every 10 to 15 years. And it, you know, it ebbs and flows with the news cycle. And I would say that you could that's transferable to fashion, to film, to television, all of it. And I think I'm not sure, to me, what's happened this year feels more meaningful than just a rotation of the trend cycle. And I think it's because the consumers um, and readers and viewers are just so incredibly savvy now and engaged that I just can't see how we can backslide to a place where things were before. Because we just have much more powerful power now. We have more tools to communicate and make our discontent known. But also, I think just thanks to the transparency of the internet, you know, so much is out there, you know, people are just much savvier. So in terms of just sort of building on some of the momentum that we've seen in terms of like, you know, a wider range of storytelling, a more representative, you know, cross section of books authored by Black people, television shows created by Black screenwriters and directors, films, you know, art exhibitions and the like. I think a part of that is just keeping conversations like this going, like keeping it out there. But I think also there's just the persistence um, and the dedication required to keep putting in the work to make sure that we're constantly creating opportunities for each other and making sure that these things are successful so that there continues to be a business case for it. I mean, you know, we were talking about Black Panther earlier. I remember there was a similar wave happening with Asian Americans where we were seeing films and television shows Hitting the theaters and Netflix, that, you know, people were really getting behind. Like, there was just, you know, s- such elation to see these stories being told. So, I think a-, a key part of it is also like really supporting these moments when they happen so that there continues to be a case for it. Well,
0: you know, this year probably hasn't been helpful for Asian Americans with COVID
1: and the backlash
0: that we've received. Um, but okay, so you've talked about joy and Black excellence. Um, what about anger? You've Mentioned in one chapter around how anger can be clarifying and for me as an activist, I am fueled by anger. So what role has anger had in your life and and can it have or should it have in the lives of other black women, especially those who have been so harmed by the system?
1: I think, I mean, I think clarifying is a great word to describe it. I mean, I think when harnessed in the right way and when, when, you know, I think that there's so many different kinds of anger, you know, that anger where you just kind of blinded by it, like just so you just, I mean, there've been so many, there've been a few moments this year, this year was so rough. When you just can't believe that you are seeing the things that you're seeing on the video footage that you're see- witnessing on the news and that it's happening again and again and again. And that anger can blind you. Like you just don't even know what to do. You don't know if you to just sit down on the floor and sob or literally pull your hair out or like hurl something through a window. Um, and, but then there's the, the kind of anger that can really be clarifying and really sort of like clarify a sense of purpose and give a sense of perspective And so I think in a lot of ways, I think that's the silver lining of this year, that out of all this deep, deep, intense pain and hurt and fury, there has also been a a clarity of purpose and a heightened sense of what really matters and the battles that are worth fighting and what's really worth pursuing and sticking with, you know, in the long term. And I say this because I'm working in an industry where, you know, I've, written, I've witnessed the sort of um, the tornadoes of outrage. You know, people love to refer to this as the rage of outrage, because even before this year, we would see like firestorms of um, scandal pop up on a Twitter or Instagram and then it died down. And so in fashion, that's been everything from, you know, an influencer wearing cornrows to, I don't know, you know, a chronic, um, consistent, you know, pay inequity in certain industries and fields or whatever. And so I think it really this year for me when I think about anger and rage it really sort of helped clarify uh you know a sense of purpose for me in my life and what I want to work towards and what I want to achieve in my in my own work.
0: So as a corollary to that you quote uh, Audrey Lord's Burst of Light where she speaks about self self-care not as a self-indulgence but as necessary as a form of self-preservation and uh, as an act of political warfare. And especially, you know, this year in times of COVID and the, your references to the hopefully mo- now more widely known disparities in maternal mortality in the black community and just health disparities in general, um, what can we do to help support a greater awareness collectively about these disparities and how can we support individual Black women in being able to engage in um, the self-preservation and self-care?
1: The self-preservation and self-care, I mean, I think there's a n- number of different sort of spheres in which we can speak to it. I mean, as someone who wrote a book while juggling work and um, child-rearing, I can say personally, in terms of self-care, it made a huge difference to me in my life to feel like I was supported. And so that was number one by, you know, my like-minded friends my chosen sisterhood who really helped support me emotionally through you know the, the challenges of juggling these things but also supported at work by you know incredible women who got it who got the juggle i mean I, i'm fortunate to work in an environment of women who are real grown ups you know s- some have children some who don't but there's a real kind of like sisterly environment and i think that really goes a long way in terms of you know women really advocating for other women as we navigate these really strange circumstances this year as we're all working from home and really trying to offset like declines in revenue streams or, you know, keep your businesses like thriving or afloat or whatever, while also just trying to like have a life and um, have kids and are, or have lovers or, or be in solitude and like keep your head above water. Um, and so I think, you know, feeling supported at work and also feeling supported at home with my friendship network and with my family. Like those are the things that have made all the difference to me in my life because otherwise I don't think it would have been able to do this. And so I think in terms of Black women, I know, you know, again, I I, you know, in promoting this book, I've been really careful in trying to just speak only to my experiences rather than, you know, because we have um, so many different circumstances and stories. But I have been in places where I haven't necessarily felt so supported or when I've left the room, I'm not necessarily sure what's being said about me or when opportunities are coming around, I'm not sure who's like sort of advocating for me and those sorts of things. And I think that's the stuff that can really make you feel decentered and destabilized. And so I think I always try to make sure that I make the people who are around me, who I work with or um, who are creative collaborators, you know, outside of the formal sort of boundaries of like, you know, the nine to five job or just in my personal and social life that I feel that I make the women in my life feel supported, like I have their back. I mean, I feel like that's a very basic notion, but I think it's, some, it's something that is extra, extra meaningful right now when you have an uncertain economy and you feel like the ground is moving beneath your feet. And um, because, you know, income are so important to us. And when that's in flux, people can react in a range of really, really strange ways. Um, and so I feel like, you know, sort of maintaining a, a level of support for one another is hugely important. And then obviously between white people, white women and black women, and obviously, you know, there's a whole history of white feminism uh, often letting black women down. And um, I don't know how we move on with that, knowing that the, the percentages are what they are in terms of the election. You know, when you look at the percentage of white women who voted for um, Trump in comparison to those who, uh, the percentage of black women, 90% of black women voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Mm. So I think there's a huge amount of work to be done there, obviously. And I I know that, you know, I experience intense frustration about that, as do many of my girlfriends. And this is something that we've talked about at length in my group group chats. But I feel like that, you know, there's this ever-present feeling among many of us that, you know, Black women are constantly showing up and doing the work, but we would love to feel like, you know, people are advocating for us and supporting us at the same time. I feel fortunate and privileged that, I'm currently in a place in my life where I do feel largely supported, and I think that's why I've been able to do what I have done, and I would love to see more women in in this place and in this position.
0: So we're at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions we call the Engendered Questionnaire, and the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: Everything, our lives. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you can overstate it, especially at a time like this. I mean, there's so much at stake: our the, our lives, the lives of our children, future generations, the environment, the climate discussion.
0: What gives you hope?
1: I mean, again, not to sound basic, but my children, the the the, the little ones. I mean, I I you know, I have an eight year old and a two year old, so I'm in that stage of parenthood where sometimes it's just hard for me not to talk about them because they're so. It's such an all encompassing experience, particularly in the age of lockdown, because I'm working from home, so I'm around them far more. And just seeing them and watching children interact with one another, that does give me hope. Also, I think these children are coming up with a different level of, of awareness than my friends and I did or our parents or their parents before them. And so seeing how they're being educated you know, gives me hope in, that, in, in how they're discussing climate change and, you know, the lessons they were learning around Black Lives Matter and the questions that they're asking, you know, that gives me a great deal of hope.
0: And the final question what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender based violence and oppression?
1: I don't know. That's such a big question. I feel like, lately, I mean, I have, um, you know, as we're wrapping up this year, I don't have a huge amount of answers to some of these big, big questions because I just don't know. I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that I think more than 78 or 76 million people voted for Trump in America, still knowing that everything that he stands for. So, I mean, I feel like the question you've just asked me is a really big one in light of that, because I mean, I, I used to think of myself as an internal optimist, but I mean, I just don't. I mean, I don't know. I just think, you know, those of us who are on the right side of history just have to keep up the good fight and just have to really keep pressing onwards. But things have never looked so polarized and so divided. And so when you have, when you feel like you're just talking and talking and talking and you're not necessarily being heard or people are nodding their heads and then turning around and doing something else completely opposite. I mean, I I, I don't know how to bridge that divide. I think the only thing we can do is just keep pressing onwards and always just keep moving onwards and holding on to hope as best we can. And I do feel really hopeful. I mean, I feel like there has been a real shift in the clearing in the clouds. But yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's going to be like a clean transition into the new year where it's like 2021 and all of a sudden, like all the problems of the past year or decade even are over. So yeah, I don't have the answer to that question. I mean, I've definitely been asking a lot of big questions myself as I try to like, as I try to wrap my head around everything that we've been through <laughs> over the past 12 months.
0: Well, I mean, I, I certainly would say that having, engaging in continual dialogue is hopefully part of it (laughs) because then we're working together to solve it. Um, But yes. So thank you so much, Kenya. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I wish you the best with this book and look forward to hearing more about your future accomplishments.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do it Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.